Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, please illuminate this text. Help us to understand it, Lord. I want to know more about you, and I want to know more about your word, and not just to know it in my head, but in my heart. So please do that work today. Please change us today into the image of your Son. And Lord, anyone that's not saved, that listens to this podcast, or even here in this room, Lord, I pray that you deal with their hearts and convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, which you said that your Holy Spirit would do when you send him. Lord, we thank you for that truth, and we pray that you would do it, and we believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to Bible Time. Colossians 3.16 introduces a different kind of topic than what we've looked at before, but with all of the background and the context of the doctrinal truths that we have dealt with. Um, It started there in Colossians 1 with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It talked about the redemption that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, even the forgiveness of his sins. It talked about how he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. We talked about all those things in Bible time. Um, Some of them have been alluded to since. We did not get all of that recorded. We started recording as we got into the first middle part of Colossians 2. Um, Colossians 2 um, dealt with the spoiling and the beguiling of man and their philosophies and the rudiments of this world, the the traditions of man, vain deceits. We studied those things uh, as we went through Colossians 2. Chapter 3 came the heart cry of the Apostle Paul speaking by inspiration, by very breath of the Holy Spirit of God. When the Apostle Paul breathed in and opened his mouth to utter these words, the Holy Spirit of God is the one that placed the words in the heart and the mouth of the Apostle Paul, and they came out of his mouth and were written on paper, and the hand of Almighty God was on the hand of the scribe that was helping Paul as it was written down when Paul wasn't himself writing. And that then the hand of Almighty God went with the original manuscripts to their destinations and protected them and carried them through the rivers and over the waters, past the fires, past the Bible haters, past the persecutors and tormentors. And he carried them through the ages and through the um, centuries and now through the millennia. For over 2,000 years, God carried the perfectly preserved exact copies of the original manuscripts. God allowed the original manuscripts, as far as we know, to be destroyed by use. But the copies of the original manuscripts that still agree one with another were carried forward. And from those copies that still agree with us, that still agree with each other, came a translation into the English language, a perfectly preserved, perfectly guided translation of the word of God in English. It was not a translation of opinion. It was not an edited or abridged copy. It was a word for word and meaning for meaning translation of the word of God into English. They took the very word of God and translated it directly into English. And we still have that today. I have held a page of 
um, several different Bibles. I've held a page of a Tyndall Bible in my hand. Tyndall gave us the entire New Testament in English, and I read in the Tyndall Bible um, what I read in my AV King James Bible today, the same thing. The only thing that has changed is that over the age, over the years, English has changed the use of st- certain letters and spellings and so here i no longer have an f in chapter 4 verse 1 where it says masters and in the old english it would say mafters or mafterf but they would say it masters they just use an f instead of an s and so those little changes in the shape of our letters and those kinds of things have changed but the content has not changed i've held um 1611 pages i've looked at them um, in detail and compared them to the pages of my authorized version bible and i find that they say the exact same thing that my bible says the type print is set more clearly my font is bigger and easier to read my letters are clearer the spelling is more simplified and that we don't have many of the strange old english spellings but the words are exactly the same the meaning is exactly the same all of that changed with westcott and hort whenever they edited the greek texts and they submitted the nestle text if i remember the text name correctly they used the codex um, sinaiticus codex vaticanus they used some ancient corrupt texts and they blended these texts that disagreed in more than 10,000 places with one another these two texts disagreed with one another in more than 10,000 places. And Westcott and Hort took these two texts and built, used them as the, as their excuse to build a separate text out of those two texts that said what they wanted it to say. And they edited and they abridged and they copied and they changed and they added to and they took away. And from that text in the late 1800s sprung the revised version, sprung the English standard version, sprung the NIV, the new international version, sprung the NASB, the New American Standard Version, and every other so-called version that has ever come up has, since that time, has come out of those texts or been heavily influenced by those texts. Even the New King James Bible was edited with the influence of these other texts, and they went through it editing out truth of God's Word. They simplified it by dumbing it down, taking out meaning. It lost meaning in multiple places. We've already mentioned how that the thou and ye and you are singular and plural uses and we get much information from them and the Greek has such information. I'll just throw this to you real quick if we're still going here. There we go. Um, I'll throw this to you real quick. Did you know that in the Greek they have singular and plural tenses in the way that they address people? So if you take the thee and the thou and the ye and you out and make it all say you, you actually lose information and you no longer have a translation. You have an abridged version. You have an edited version that has been simplified and information has been lost in it. When they translated the King James Bible into English and they came across this problem, that in 1611, people were not walking around the street saying thee and thou and ye and you. The Quakers did it, but nobody else. And it was strange that the Quakers were doing it. It was strange to people that they talked in such a way. But they knew what they were doing, and I'm not saying anything for 
against the Quakers, but they were doing that because partly of the biblical influence. But the King James Bible translators knew that if they removed thee and thou and ye and you from the Bible, they would remove information. They would lose information. So they left it in the word of God in spite of the fact that it was not common vernacular. Now, why are we off on all this? Our verse starts with, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You've got to have the word of Christ to have it dwell in you richly. So they put the ye's and the you's and the these and the thou's in there, and you just have to bear with it. By the way, in English, if you want to get married and you go to the courthouse and get a marriage license, it will have ye's and you's and these and thou's. If you get a bank loan to buy a house and you go and sign on the, on the dotted line, you will find that in your contract it has ye's and you's and these and thou's because they're very specific terms that are required for a definite, um, definable, unarguable contract to be written and if you leave it up to use it leaves ambiguity it leaves it so that people can argue and say somebody wasn't really included or somebody else was included so the Bible is clear and the word of God is preserved. The Holy Spirit of God preserved the word of God. The Holy Spirit of God breathed the word of God, inspired the word of God, and God has preserved his word to this day. And we still have it today, a perfect only one. There is only one translation of the word of God into English. And it has several revisions that have taken place since 1611 up until the last, the Scrivener's was the last honest one. And I don't remember the exact date. It was in the late 1800s, 60s, or 70s, but that was an honest revision of the Word of God to update spelling to keep pace with the changes in the English language. God's Word had not changed, but our language had changed. Therefore, they altered some of the spellings to reflect the language without losing the meaning or the content of the Word of God in any way. We have the perfectly preserved Word of God. There have been many uh, mutations, many mistakes in individual Bibles. I have a Bible that I read in the evenings to the children, and in it I found a place where those that edited it had accidentally put a space in the word has, and it says H-A space S. And there are many individual copies that will have such textual errors in them, but the body of God's word has been preserved perfectly and without error in jot or in tittle throughout the ages. God has always preserved his word and he always will preserve his word. Now it says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Here in Colossians 3.16, the beginning of this text begins with the word of Christ. So we're going to look at this part quickly, this first part, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And let's just break this down um, just about word by word and phrase by phrase and think about it. The word let, it means to allow something to take place that A, you would naturally prevent and B, would naturally occur if you didn't prevent it. Did you follow that? To let something happen means to allow something to take place that you would naturally resist from happening and that B, would 
naturally happen if you didn't resist it. So the idea here is there's something that God wants to do in your heart, something that God wants to give you, something that God wants to impute to you, something that God has taken the responsibility to work into you. And what is your responsibility here? He did not say, make the word of God dwell in you richly. He did not say, memorize the word of God so that it will dwell in you richly. He said, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Therefore, this word of Christ will dwell in you richly if you let God do it. That is what he is saying. That is why God used this word. And that lines up perfectly with everything else that we have been studying throughout this study in the book of Colossians. How that it is a work of the spirit of God, not a work of the carnal flesh of man that produces holiness and righteousness in the Christian life. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise his holy name. It is not up to me to memorize the Bible enough to be holy. It's not up to me to read it enough to be holy. It is up to me to yield to that which God will do. Now let's look at what God will do. It says, let the word of Christ. The word of Christ means the alpha and omega, what he spoke. This was covered in detail in our podcast, New Revelation, which we did just a couple days ago. And we did that to lay a groundwork for Colossians 3.16 when we got there. I even said that at the beginning of the podcast. This will lay us a foundation. And we went deeply into the word of God, the preservation, the inspiration of God's word, and many of those things. Not nearly as deeply as some could go, um, I'm sure, but we did the best that we could with the help of the Lord. So the word of Christ is, first of all, the word of the word. John 1 says, in the beginning was the what? I don't hear you. The word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Bible says there in John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father. The Bible says in Hebrews that he is that which our hands have handled of the word of life, that he is that which our hands have handled. Let me turn there real quick. I wasn't planning on going there. Hebrews chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry. That's John. 1 John 1. I always get those crossed in my mind. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Jesus Christ, the living word, then spoke words. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the lowercase w words, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. When I give a text, try to get there, even if you get there late, and fact check me. Make sure I'm telling you the right verses. Make sure I'm quoting them right. If I'm quoting them, make sure I'm getting it right and not taking scripture out of context. You cannot trust preachers. No matter how much you love them or respect them, you must trust God alone and the word of God alone. Fact check me. Get your Bible out and fact check me. And the Holy Spirit bears witness in my spirit every time I tell you that that I'm telling you the right thing. You should not trust me. You should trust the Lord Jesus Christ and fact check everything I say with the scripture. Search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. Now, 
the Bible says that um, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So the word of Christ is the is the actual audible word. It's also the written word. It's the spoken word of the living word, Jesus Christ. And to separate these two out to the degree that our modern culture does and say that the living word is what is preserved forever. Well, the written or spoken word is not preserved is the height of folly. It is intellectual purposeful ignorance. Did you hear that today? Intellectual ignorance. You say, how can there be such a thing as intellectual ignorance? It's very easy. Get out a bunch of books written by man, fill your head with their philosophies and with their traditions. And then when you're confronted by truth in God's word, choose what the men said instead of what God said. And you have now entered into intellectual ignorance. That's how you get it. Now the word of Christ, he says to let the word of Christ dwell in you. So what is this talking about? This is talking about a word that can dwell. Now word cannot really dwell anywhere. Think about the word right there on your page. If in Colossians 3, 1, if, if doesn't dwell, if just is, if, if is on a page, if exists, if was written, if ye then be risen with Christ, those words are letters printed on a white page in black ink. They don't really dwell, but the word of Christ here is told, we are told to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now this has an amazing inference. The word dwell infers a living being. Now John 6, 63, as we noted, says the word of God is quick, or I'm sorry, says the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That means that they're alive. Another text in the Bible says that the word of God is quick and and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And that word quick means alive. Now go to John 15, 7. John 15, 7. Could I ask someone to grab me some water, please? John 15 and verse 7. If I can ever find it. Here Jesus is talking about abiding in the vine. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. He begins in John 15, 1. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So here's the source of the word. It's spoken by Jesus Christ. And that word spoken by Jesus Christ has the power to clean that which was once dirty. This is no common word. This is a supernatural word. This is a divine word. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. So here he says that the word will cleanse us. He says to abide in him, and that through abiding in him, we will have power to do that which otherwise we could not do. Thank you. Make a mess there. So here we have power through abiding that otherwise we have no access to. He says, if a man abide not in me, he is cast for the branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. 
Now look at verse 7. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So here's two parts to the abiding. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. So Jesus Christ abiding in me, the source of all fruit, you can study out John 15 on your own later. Uh, That is an incredible passage of scripture. And he goes on in much detail about bearing fruit and God's will for you to bear fruit. So this abiding, Christ abiding in me, then produces the word of God abiding in me. And if the word of God abides in me, not just the living word, but the spoken word of God, then I will bring forth much fruit. Now go back to Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So this word that would dwell in you is directly connected to Jesus Christ himself dwelling in you. This comes at salvation. When a man is born again by the power of God, Jesus Christ moves in and takes up residence in that man's soul. We have studied this out as well. It's all through the word of God. Jesus Christ living in the man will then infuse the man with his word. Now, how will he do that? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And it says, richly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And we'll see Christ's operation of the word of God in the life of a believer as we go through this real quickly first of all as Christ dwells in the believer the word of Christ is brought to the remembrance of the believer by the Holy Ghost according to Jesus Christ he said the comforter will dwell in you he said he will I will send you another comforter and he shall bring to your remembrance the things you have heard of me in other words he will remind you of my word my that is his written word his spoken word if we do not have have his word you cannot hear his word and therefore the holy spirit cannot remind you of his word the ministry of the spirit of god is not to produce a new revelation of god's word in your heart but rather to call to remembrance the written word of god that you have been exposed to This is absolutely critical. The Holy Spirit of God calls to your remembrance the word of God that you have been exposed to. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It dwells in you first by bringing Jesus Christ into your heart, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believed on his name. Now these that become the sons of God, how do they do it? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when the word of God bursts in your heart, as we talked in the new revelation, that we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That the word of God that you believe to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior then begins to grow in you and it produces a thirst for more of the word of God. As Peter said, says that you are as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Nobody that has no hunger or thirst for the word of God, no desire for the word of God can possibly have ever been saved if they have never had a desire for the word of God. A baby desires milk and he does it naturally. You do not have to force a baby to want its milk. 
It comes naturally. And this goes back to our text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is something that if that you would have to prevent. You would have to prevent it to stop it. And if you do not prevent it, it will not be stopped unless you are lost. The word of Jesus Christ will dwell in you richly if you are saved because God will produce the desire and the power. We're going to see that in just a minute. That's what grace is. God's grace will produce the desire and the power to get more of God's word in you. And this is a product of the living word taking up residence in the heart of a man. And I am excited today. I'm excited because this is a living word. I'm excited because I got down on my knees with my notebook and my Bible and I said, God, I've about exhausted everything I can think of in Colossians and the Lord prompted me it isn't you doing it anyway just get your Bible out and study and I started studying and it started coming out and the more I study and the more I preach the more excited I get about it and the more God reveals it to me and the more richly it comes bubbling up in my soul and that's not because I'm a super Christian it's because the living word lives within me and he's ministering the written word to my soul and to my spirit even now hallelujah to the lamb so the word of God is going to dwell in us richly we're told to let the word of God dwell in you richly that means abundantly overflowing more than can be used we're told in the word of God in Thessalonians quench not the spirit what does that mean does that mean when you feel like it just start rolling on the floor and show the whole church your underwear That's what a lot of people think is quenching the spirit. If you don't do that kind of stuff, quenching the spirit is whenever the Holy Spirit of God prompts you to get out your Bible and you say, I'm too busy, and you resist that which God would have naturally produced in your life, which is an abundant, overflowing, abounding, dwelling, overflowing word of God dwelling in you richly but you stifle it you stifle it by shutting it down so that you can get to work early you stifle it by shutting it down so that you can sleep longer and etc and etc he says let the word of god dwell in you richly in all wisdom now if it's going to dwell in you richly and you're going to let it then this again implies that God himself is the one that is going to make it rich in your life and how are you going to have it richly this is going to come from reading memorizing and meditating considering the word of God esteeming it more than my necessary food Job said that If his adversary had written a book, meaning God, that he would bind it on his head like a crown. This is what this is talking about. So are you saved? Are you risen? If you are, then prove it. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Has the word of God ever dwelt in you richly? Have you ever had even the urge to be in the word of God? Has it ever been a consuming desire of your heart and of your soul? Now, you do not read, memorize, and meditate on the Word of God in order for it to dwell in you richly. You do that because of the grace of God, the desire and power of God that comes into your heart that produces that desire, and then you let God fulfill the desire by disciplining your members, mortifying your members, and making your old man submit to the impulses and promptings of the Holy Spirit of God to get out your Bible and put away other things and get your face in the book and memorize the book and meditate on the book that's how you do it 
you do it by letting. It is something you have to do. And remember, we've talked about the reality of spirituality. If your so-called spirituality does not result in a hunger and thirst after righteousness, which results in a reading and memorizing and meditating of the word of God, you have a mystical false spirituality from another spirit. Because the spirituality that God wants to work in you is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, this all wisdom wisdom is you guys should know this the correct use of knowledge right that's our our family study on saturday wisdom is the correct use of knowledge do you know how to drive prove it oh you ran off the road and hit a tree you proved the opposite Wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. You know how to turn the car on. You know how to move the steering wheel and give the vehicle gas. But if you do not have wisdom to correctly apply your knowledge, you will drive off the bridge into the river. Copy? So wisdom then, as you read the Bible, will will bring you to a proper understanding of the word of God. This admonition infers that the word of God can be known, but misapplied. The word of God can be known, but misapplied. How do we rightly divide, rightly apply the word of truth? We dealt with this in our podcast, New Revelation, a couple days ago. But there are a couple basic ways to do it. There's four basic ways. There's context, there's context, there's context, and there's context. Now, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about the different ways that we can apply it in its context. First of all, you take the Bible literally in its given context. You read the Bible. Context means with the text. You read your Bible verse, and then you read the verses around the Bible verse, and then you read the verses around the Bible verses around your Bible verse, and you read the chapters before and the chapters after, and then you read the books before and the books after, and then you read the whole thing from cover to cover, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you apply the Scripture in its context. You take it literally in its context. When it says that the ravens brought bread and flesh in the morning to Elijah, you say, okay, God, they brought bread and flesh. I believe you. And you take it literally in its context. And then you can look up the other verses about bread and you can find the manna in the wilderness. You say, oh, that was bread. You can find other places that talk about bread. And then you can get down to Jesus saying, my life, the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the world. And you can say, oh, old Elijah got chunks of Jesus. Well, you just blew the context. You can went completely out of the context. But if you say, wait a second, this is a picture and this is a type. Elijah is the remnant Jew hiding from old Jezebel during the tribulation and the ravens are going to bring bread and flesh. Hallelujah. And here's the remnant Jew getting the gospel during the tribulation. And on and on and on you can see the spiritual applications of a literal truth. And it's really not that difficult. And if I missed it, then God will correct me. Do you know how he'll correct me? He'll show me other verses in the word of God. He may even use you to do it if you bring me those verses and show me them in their context that help me to understand where I have departed from the truth that God God was showing me. Lord, help us. We're in our first part of of several parts, and we're halfway through our time already. This is exciting stuff. 
I love the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So first of all, you take it literally in its context. This is how you rightly apply the word of God. Secondly, you let the word of God define itself in its context. You get the definition of the word of God from the word of God. The Bible says that through the name of Jesus, we can be saved. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. What does it mean to believe? Go to John 3 and read what he said to Nicodemus about believing. Go on down through there. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Go through and look at what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And start putting Bible verses with Bible verses. Compare phrases with phrases. Compare words with words. Compare statements with statements. Look at who was talking, when they were talking, why they were talking. What was the result of what they said? What was the result in the lives of the people that did not listen? What was the result in the lives of the people that did listen? Compare it to other places in the Bible, and the Bible will define the Bible. You say, wait a second, you can't get any kind of degree for doing it that way. You're right. You say, wait a second, that takes a lot of time. You're right. You say, wait a second, that means basically what you're saying is total immersion in the Word of God at the, at the expense of all doctoral, doctrinal and theological studies. Yep, you're pretty much right. You let the Bible define the Bible. And then guess what you do next? You compare scripture to scripture in similar context. We kind of covered this already. So first you take it literally in its given context. Secondly, you allow the Bible to define its own self in its context. And thirdly, you compare scripture to scripture in similar context. Whenever you're looking at a scripture about cleanliness in the Old Testament, talking about lepers, you cannot take that and apply it point blank to a verse that's talking about being cleansed from your sins. Yea, though your sins be as scarlet, yet shall they be washed whiter than snow. In Isaiah, you have to look at the difference in the context and then you have to find the similarities that still apply literally. There are similarities, but they do not apply directly. Now, fourthly, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established in its context. So, and we started to touch on this again, jumping the tracks again, getting ahead of ourselves. But here you take the Bible and you let the mouth of two or three witnesses establish every word, just like the Bible says. So when the Bible says something about a woman wearing a head covering in a church, for example, you must compare it with other passages of scripture that are also dealing with the New Testament church and see what it has to say. And you'll find out there that that passage in Corinthians is the only place that deals with that subject which means what what does it mean that whether the head covering is the woman's hair or whether the head covering is a doily or whether it is a towel whether it goes down to her ears or the floor they were commanded to have a head covering but it was not absolutely defined and it was not reiterated in other gospels or in other epistles of the gospel so therefore we cannot take that as a mandate to 
the church. Do you hear me today? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now there are scriptural truths in that passage that can be found in other passages. And where you find them in other passages, you apply them, you line them up together, and you find what God is communicating to us. And you allow his word to bring the two or three witnesses to tell us what he was saying when he said what he was saying. Have you ever sat and listened to a preacher? Boy, 35 minutes already. I got to stop thinking about the time. I hope you're not sitting there fretting about the time. Lord, help us today. Help me just to preach and teach. So have you ever sat under a pastor and he says, and he read a verse and he says, now what that means is this. And then he reads another word and he says, what that means is this. And he doesn't back it up with scripture. He just gives you his opinions and he gives you the opinions of men. Whenever you're dealing with that, I've I've got one word for you. Run. Get out of there. You don't need that. Nobody needs that. All you're getting is opinions. You're going to be spoiled if you hang around that junk. Now, if somebody says what that means is blah, they better have Bible to back it up. And when they back it up with Bible, then you know you've got something. Then you know you've got something. Now, um, here, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So beware as you approach the Bible. If you come in pride, you're already shot. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Go to 2 Peter 3.15 and we'll move on to the body of our message today. 2 Peter 3.15. Here, Peter is talking about the Apostle Paul. He's talking about some of Paul's letters. He directly references um, Paul's epistles here. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. He says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So here he's mentioning the letters of Paul, who Paul wrote according to wisdom. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Scripture can be rested. It can be misapplied. Be careful. Come with wisdom. Come with the wisdom of God's word. Come with humility and ask God for wisdom to rightly divide the word of God lest you rest the scriptures to your own destruction. Wisdom being the correct use of knowledge. Now what is the result of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Let's look at that here in verse 16. The result that you're going to get, he says here, is teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now buckle up and let's move fast as the body of our message, and it is a new music. We have a new birth, a new creature. We have a new nature. We have all of these new things that God has given, a new revelation. We've been studying our new mini-series on the old man and the new man out of Colossians, and now we're going to hit on some new music for the new man. First of all, this new music is a teaching music and an admonishing music. This first part is teaching and admonishing one another. Let's look at that, and then we'll look into these different parts of music, Lord willing, and be done. 
First of all, to teach. To teach is to take truth and define the terms, illuminate by illustrations and set in contrast with falsehoods and with other pertinent truths to instill in another person a truth that they can learn personally. Some of you look like you got lost there. That's okay. To teach means to take truth and instill it to another person. You do that by defining terms. How did we study Proverbs the other day? We had to get out a dictionary and start looking up words and figuring out what they meant. And then even more importantly, start comparing those words in other places in scripture, which is the ultimate authority so that we could get a clear understanding of what the word said in Proverbs, didn't we? Who remembers doing that? And until we did that, you really didn't have a clue what it was saying, did you? It didn't really mean anything, did it? But once we began to define the terms, then the illumination began to set in. To teach is to impart truth, to instill in others a truth. And that is done by definition of terms, by illumination through illustration, and by setting in contrast, both with other terms and with other truths and sometimes with falsehoods. This teaching here is rested on the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching one another other teaching and admonishing one another so this teaching is based on the word of God so the teaching and then the admonishing now what is admonishing how how many of you know what admonishing is do you admonish something by putting it in a clothes dryer do you admonish something by washing it underwater how do you admonish something now, I don't have time to dig into it deep. You can get out your dictionary and then also look it up all over the Bible and study it out. Admonishing is to give warning. It is to go beyond the simple teaching of fact and to apply the truth taught to the life and circumstances of individuals and groups. So what does that mean? So I impart truth to you, Aiden. By teaching you a fact. But then I admonish you, Edward, by taking that truth and applying it to your circumstances so that you can see how that that truth affects you in your daily life. So we are here told to teach and admonish one another. The third part of that phrase is one another. This is written to the church at Colossae. Now, you have to have wisdom and understand the context. This is not speaking of the pastoral ministry. This is not saying that a pastor has to sing every time he preaches. That's not what it's saying. Do you hear me? This is talking about the body and that the body in its interactions one with another. Paul here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is dealing with the interactions of the church membership. The church people dealing with one another. And that, (coughs) excuse me. So this is not speaking of pastoral ministry or any official position, but rather the daily interaction between saints. First and second Timothy, Titus, as well as the um, Peter's epistles have much to say about the individual ministries. This is dealing with our interactions one with another and our interactions one with another should teach and admonish one another using music. Who would have guessed that that's what God was going to say next? He didn't say teaching and admonishing one another with a whiteboard. He didn't say teaching and admonishing one another with a dictionary or a um, textbook. He said teaching and admonishing one another. And then look what he says next. 
<clears throat> teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now quickly, and we'll be done, we have different types of music here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then we're going to look at the motive force of these different types of songs of this music, which is singing with grace in your hearts. And then we're going to look quickly at the object or direction of the music, which is to the Lord. So our first part here of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, is Psalms. Now we've got Psalm 119 and verse 33. <coughs> Excuse me, starting there. And I am hoarse. So I'm going to do the best I can. We're just going to plow into this. Teach me, O Lord. That's too high. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding that I may keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. A little faster. Make me to go in the way of thy, in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness." This means literally to sing scriptures. I apologize that you had to bear with my voice and my, my shortcomings and difficulties there as I sang, but that is literally what this is saying, to sing scriptures. You have 150 psalms in the psalms. Psalm 119 has more than 20. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, many psalms within it, and each one of those can be sung. They've been set to music. Um, <clears throat> I'll see if we can get the link up to a songbook for Psalm 119. If that's something that would interest you, we'll try and post that up on the website. Um, we don't produce it or put it out, but we'll try and get you a link to someone who does um, sell it there. Um, other psalms are scattered all throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 12 is a psalm. It tells us to sing unto the Lord and cry aloud. Let's go there real quick. Isaiah chapter 12. This is a prophet's psalm in the Bible. A beautiful psalm. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name name is exalted sing unto the lord for he hath done excellent things this is known in all the earth cry out and shout thou inhabitant of zion for great is the holy one of israel in the midst of thee there are psalms all through the Bible, and psalms should be sung unto the Lord. It is a powerful thing to sing the scriptures and to find scriptures that are set to music <coughs> excuse me Hymns are a are poetic biblical works. I won't make you bear with me through whole hymns, but I will just start a couple here. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 
And on that one goes by Martin Luther, written hundreds of years ago. You have a more modern hymn written, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And many other hymns that have been written, they are biblical, poetic works. Now, we don't have that I can find examples of hymns from the time of Christ or other times in the Bible. And we do have many psalms. Those are Bible themselves. Hymns are often written by people in their own dialect and in their own circumstances. And their set poetry is one of the most difficult things to translate. William Tyndale translated, I believe, the psalms, if not all the psalms, most of the psalms into English and did an outstanding job. And they, such a job, William Tyndale's work of 63% of the Bible was not changed um, very much at all, if any, by the translators that sat down to bring the finished 1611 Bible to the print. <clears throat> So here's hymns are mentioned in the Bible. Mark 14, 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. Christ and his disciples sung a hymn at the close of the Last Supper. Now, hymns should be poetic. They should be doctrinal. They must be biblical for them to truly be a hymn. And the music should match the spirituality of the hymn. The music should match the spirituality of the hymn. It should just think of holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Forgive my voice again. We have an organ playing holy, holy, holy at the beginning and ending of Bible time in most of the releases or most of the broadcasts here, podcasts. And the music matches the doctrinal truth that has been set to poetry in the text. The music rises and falls with the doctrine and with the biblical phrases that are there. The third part that we have of music is spiritual songs. Now, Deuteronomy 32, you don't have to turn to that one right now. Instead, go to Revelation 14. Deuteronomy 32 is a song. There's an introduction and some other um, words of Moses in there, but the bulk of that chapter is a song written by Moses. The Bible tells us that we're to speak, and, uh, that we're to sing unto one another that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs should teach and they should admonish. Now, Revelation 14 and verse 3, you have 144,000, and it says, And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. And it was a song that only the 144,000 could learn. Go to chapter 15 and verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven. Go on down to... Verse 2, and I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. So here are a bunch of the redeemed and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Notice they used instruments in their worship. God all throughout the word of God includes instruments. He tells us to praise him on the cymbals, on the high sounding cymbals. He says to praise him on the harps. He says to praise him on all manner of instruments all through the Psalms. 
And it says in verse 3, and this is New Testament, by the way, they have the harps of God. And verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And there's another song, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all the nations are, shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Now I want you to notice that that is almost unsingable. Good luck finding a meter for that. Uh, that is the same with Deuteronomy 32. Good luck finding a meter for that. Now you could argue that in the Hebrew it may be more singable than in the English in Deuteronomy 32. But I will just want you to acknowledge the fact that these songs are almost unsingable. Spiritual songs in the Bible are almost what we would consider ballads. Now the Scots and the Irish would make ballads to carry, to tell the truths, to glorify their history, to glorify the history of their nation and they would sing ballads that sometimes would last long periods of time and those ballads would tell a historical happening and they used to gather around their fires in the tribes of the Celts uh, in the, up in Ireland and in Scotland and other places also had, the, had their ballads. The Norse had ballads, which we call Vikings. They had ballads and they would tell of the great exploits of their heroes. There are many ballads that have been passed down from many of the ancient civilizations and these ballads will be almost unsingable. They're almost an art in and of themselves. They rarely have a meter. The music is matched perfectly to the story and it tells a story and they carry it out as a story and it just has to be memorized these spiritual songs will be loaded with doctrine and laborious to learn now psalms are sung from easy to difficult but starting at the very easy psalms were given by God as the simple praise and worship music of the saints and God gave it to us the psalms as our praise and worship Hymns were given by God as doctrinal poetic expressions of truth that we can teach and admonish one another with. And these are given in many tribes and tongues and have their own hymns that they sing. And then spiritual songs, perhaps the pinnacle of this music that we would sing, the most difficult, the most laborious. By the way, we talk about how Psalm says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. And we say, God didn't say make a skillful noise. He said a joyful noise oh hold on a second the bible says sing skillfully unto the lord and in the psalms it uses the word mascal which is m-a-s-c-h-i-l if i spelled it right and that means skillfully there's a place for people like me with a gravelly voice over here rasping out a song and there's a time and a place for that but there's a time and a place for people who can't sing to be quiet and listen to people who can sing and for them to sing songs that take time and effort and labor to learn don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. don't throw out the good just or don't throw out something difficult and for the sake of everything easy you end up watering down your church we need it all we need the songs like Jesus loves, loves Me that every little child can sing. And we need songs like How Great Our Lord, which is a great Russian ballad, which would probably get somewhere between hymns and spiritual songs. Very difficult song, but a very powerful song. And other songs like it that God gives <coughs> that are loaded with doctrine and laborious to learn. There are songs that no five-year-old can sing. That doesn't make them bad. 
It just means the five-year-old needs to sing his nursery song about Jesus, which is wonderful. And then the choir needs to get up that has labored and worked and practiced. And by the way, the people with skillful voices who have worked to tune their voice so that they can sing it in a way that gives ultimate glory to God and least disruption and distraction to the crowd in their worship of God. And they can sing skillfully to God. We need the full spectrum. We need all of the above. So these are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And these are no, there are no cheap choruses included anywhere in this whole list. Now, Lord, help us to be clothed with humility here. Listen to me carefully. The music of these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're going to touch this because we're here. The music, the actual musical notes, the rhythm, the background, what instruments you use, the emphasis of the instruments, the dynamic rise and fall, the, the tempo, the speed, all of the musical parts that would pertain to musical theory that musicians have to learn to be musicians, by the way, all of those elements of music must match the content of the music for the music to be holy and set apart unto God. I want to ask you a question. If you took some one of your Christian radio stations out here that you listen to and you took the words out of it and just played their music, could you play that music in a honky tonk? Could you play it in a bar? Could you play it in a nightclub and have people continue to act the way that they are acting? Would it affect the people in those locations and in those venues if you played your music and stripped the words from it? Can you take your songs that you sing to God and take scriptural words out of them and sing those same songs with unscriptural, wicked words and fill them with fornication and vice and have bestsellers? Do you hear me today? Would it fit? Can the musical content of your songs be wedded with the ungodliness of this world? Do you remember that the grace of God, oh, I'm jumping my ship here. If it can, we'll get to that in a second. If it can, if your music could be played in a nightclub, as long as they can't hear that you're talking about Jesus, they can play it in a nightclub and people can go along with it and dance to it and get drunk to it and enjoy it completely then I submit to you, you have got something that shouldn't be mixed. You have mixed something that shouldn't be mixed, and it is an unscriptural, unspiritual mixing. Now, we're going to look at that real quickly here. I know this is nuts and bolts stuff, and most of you are probably ready to turn me off already. The motive force of the music is next. The motive force of the music. We looked at the types of music to be employed by this church that has allowed the word of God to dwell in them richly in all wisdom. The types of music that should be employed. And now we're looking at the motive force of the music. He says, singing with grace in your hearts. Singing with grace in your hearts. The grace in the heart is the motive force. Ephesians 2.8. <coughs> Go quick. Go <coughs> quick. Check me on it. By grace, for by grace are ye saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
We claim the grace of God that saves us. And grace does save. Without grace, no man can be saved. The grace of God is what saves. But did you know that the grace of God is also that which sanctifies? Go to Titus chapter 2. If you have a grace that saves but does not sanctify, you have another kind of grace. It's not a biblical kind of grace. It doesn't even exist. Lord, help me. Excuse me. Please forgive my raspiness, my coughing and and hacking. Um, So Titus 2.11 for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Hallelujah for that. Now, if somebody can understand saving grace, that's not that big a deal, um, humanly speaking, because God says that that grace hath appeared to all men. But look at what grace teaches. Now, we have songs here that are supposed to teach and admonish. Do you follow that? These songs that are supposed to be sung in our churches are to teach and to admonish us. What does grace teach? We sing about amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I'm see. But now I see. But what does grace teach? Look at Titus. Teaching us that denying ungodliness. That means resisting, standing against refusing, rejecting, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I submit to you today that if your music is not sober, righteous, and godly, it is not music of grace. Now, you can sing about grace, but if your music does not reflect that which grace teaches, then your music is not a product of grace. This is basic. It's fundamental. And it's, it's absolutely simple inductive and deductive reasoning. Absolutely basic. And God doesn't, listen, spirituality is reality. Spirituality is logical based upon the word of God as its foundation. That's what makes it spiritual. Spirituality is spirituality because God said it. That's what makes it spiritual. Not because it's hard to comprehend in a sense or not even because it's uh, foggy or ephemeral or mystical. Spirituality, Spirituality is spirituality because it is God infused and God dealt and God done. Spirituality comes from God because God is a spirit. They that worship him, the Bible says, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Beware the wedding of godly words and ungodly music. You say there's no such thing. I tell you, you are scripturally eganararent. How many syllables can we fit in that word? Scripturally, biblically, you are ignorant if you say that your, that your music does not have any spirituality one way or the other and that the words are what determines the spirituality of your music. The music must match the words. That's the same wicked doctrine that says that the person that says they're saved can look like hell. Oh, you say you're saved and you're going to go out and wear your pants down around your knees. You're going to wear gold chains all over and get tattoos of crosses and tattoos about Jesus and wear earrings and wear your ball cap in the house of God and march around up there perverting, um, um, speaking profanity and at the same time professing to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are an absolute moral contradiction. And the world knows it. The world mocks you. The world doesn't believe it. The world doesn't buy it. The world thinks you are a joke. Do you hear me today? 
If your words do not match your life, you are a hypocrite. And if your music does not match the words that are being sung, your music is hypocritical. Now, first John says, uh, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world and the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, uh, this year. Grace is the desire and power to obey God, which brings us to salvation. And grace is the desire and power to obey God, which lifts our hearts in obedience to God until we burst forth in biblical song, such as true spiritual worship empowered by grace. The motive force of godly music must be the grace of God that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, holily, and without blame, I forget exactly how that goes in this present world. You look it up in Titus and read it again. I'm going to find it. I don't want to butcher it up. It's worth taking the extra 30 seconds here. I did butcher it up, but we'll find it and read it. Forgive me for not having it memorized. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, this must be, music must be biblical or it's not spiritual. Remember the reality of spirituality. If you say that you are spiritual but you are not biblical, you are not spiritual because spirituality is biblical or it is not spirituality because spirituality comes from God and God gave us his word so we're commanded here in Colossians let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord I probably messed that up too Lord have mercy on me singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord now this brings us to the last part and we'll be done the object or the direction of music and that is to the Lord. Colossians 3.11 tells us that Christ is all in all and this is in the context of the church. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ humbled himself but that God exalted him. Wherefore hath God highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. A name that is above every name. Go there real quick to Philippians. I dare you, I challenge you to look in your Bible and actually read Philippians 2 and for just a minute, lay down your preconceived ideas about Christ that you've been taught in church and seminary and do a study of Philippians 2 in your Bible and see what it actually says Jesus is, especially in verse 7. And if your Bible says that he thought not to be equal with God, throw it out, burn it, get in a good Bible. Because your Bible is full of blasphemy. <clears throat> now, the object or the direction of the music must be to the Lord. 
Philippians 2 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go to Revelation 15, and we see that song that was sung, and this should be our last text here. As you're turning there to Revelation 15, the song that is sung... Consider for a moment that Satan himself was an instrumentalist and a musician and a leader of music in heaven. Satan himself was lifted up in pride and fell because of his pride. Now the object of our worship of our music must be Christ. Any other object is a false object and a false worship. Look at this text here. In verse 3 of Revelation 15, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of, the, of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest." True biblical singing, true biblical teaching and admonishing is based on the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Who does your music glorify? Who is really being glorified? Who is receiving the glory? The musician? The event? The composer? The director? The event leader? The instrument? Maybe the author? Or maybe myself? My emotions, my feelings of mystical spirituality, chills and goosebumps that run up and down my back, the hairs raising up on the back of my arms, an uplifting feeling that causes me to sway and raise my hands. None of that is necessarily wrong in and of itself. But if that is the purpose and if that is the drive and if that is the effect that is desired in your songs and hymns, you are off base, you are not scriptural, you are mystical in your music. And your music is not bringing honor and glory to God it is bringing honor and glory to Satan himself who is the author of confusion and the only and his sole purpose his greatest purpose is to detract from the glory of God and any way he can to try and steal the glory of God we have a new music today a new man there's a new man and an old man the old man likes the old music the new man likes the new music let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Amen.